This episode of TGC's Word of the Week is sponsored by the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. It's March, and in the theological world, that means it's SBTS madness. Our friends at Southern Seminary are giving away over 100 books from their world-renowned faculty. Visit sbts.edu slash madness to learn more and win free books. Being a loving church, being a loving Christian is no excuse for accepting false teaching. That's Jesus' point here. I have this against you. Being loving, doing good works, not enough. We have to guard the truth that's been entrusted to us. This is TGC's Word of the Week, a sermon podcast from the Gospel Coalition. This week's sermon, What Does God Have Against Your Church?, was preached by Mes McConnell at Nidri Community Church in Edinburgh, Scotland, on July the 15th, 2018. The text is Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 28. Listen now to Mes McConnell on what does God have against your church. Why don't you open your Bible to the book of Revelation. We have been studying the book of Revelation as a church together now for a couple of months. We're actually looking at the seven churches of Revelation We have arrived at church number four, which you'll find in Revelation chapter two, verse 18. If you want to turn there, but just before we sort of read the text together, let me give you a bit of background as to what is going on. Now, when I was a kid uh, growing up in the 80s on a Yorkshire council estate, uh, one huge major event shaped the life of my community and and the life of pretty much uh, a huge percentage of working class men across the country. Anyone remember what that was? The miners' strike. It's exactly what it was. Now, there were lots of strikes in the UK in the 70s and 80s, but this one, the miners' strike, uh, the great strike, dominated the news. And the results of it decimated our communities for generations. And even if you weren't a miner, you knew a miner. You knew a miner, you knew his family. And everybody was affected, you know, uh, in the 80s, particularly around mining communities. um, They were very close-knit. There wasn't much else going on. And so when the miners walked out, the community walked with them. When the miners walked out and they, and, and they didn't have any money to feed their families because they're on the picket line, the community chipped in to help them feed their families. I remember those days very well. But here, <clears throat> but the problem was this, that when the going got tough, and it did get tough, it got brutal at times in the strikes in, in, in the, uh, the mid-early 80s. Um, some people couldn't hack it. Some people... You know, it got too much for them. Uh, some people got bust in, but a lot of people had young mouths to feed, uh, and they just wanted to work. They were desperate to work, in fact. And so they crossed the picket lines to work in the mines. I remember the special buses, all armor-plated and with mental. They crossed the lines to work to earn money for their family, and we called those, those people scabs. And a scab is as bad as a paedophile. In their eyes back then. If you were a scab, you were in big trouble. You couldn't walk down the streets 
on our estate if you were a scab without getting spat on or having rocks thrown through your windows. Your children were bullied, terrorized at school by other kids. The whole community turned on you if you were a scab. 100%, every single case I ever knew, 100%, if you were a scab and you walked the line, sooner or later you were forced out of your house. You had to leave. The corner shop wouldn't even serve you a pint of milk. Nobody would do anything to help you. Loyalty to the union, loyalty to your brothers came above everything. And if you blew that, you were scum. You were nothing. Those are the rules, and everybody knew it. And so as you, just as we jump into this reading this morning, we need to understand something about this place called Thyatira. Basically, Thyatira was a union town. It was a working class town. Except they didn't call them unions back then, they, would, they called them guilds, okay? There were bakers' guilds, butchers' guilds, leatherworking guilds, copper guilds, all sorts of guilds. And if you wanted a job, you had to join a guild. That's how you got it done, right? And if you're laddie, or lassie, laddie in that culture, obviously, if your laddie wanted an apprenticeship, right, you had to be a guildsman. That's how you got the job. That's how your family got work. You understand? You had to be part of the union, part of the guilds. Now, the big difference between the guilds back then and the unions of our day was every guild had a god or gods that they worshipped. Think of it like a, you know, a lucky charm or a, a lucky mascot. Each guild had their own particular deity that they worshipped. And so when you became a member of a guild, you had to swear loyalty to the god of that guild. And not only did you have to swear loyalty to the god of that guild, also you were expected as a guild member to attend all the festivals and parties and social gatherings of that guild. And pretty much all of these Festivals and parties turned into orgies because they were all concerned with temple prostitution, okay? So, you can imagine the problem this was then if you're a Christian, right? So you say, I'm a Christian, I'm going to follow Jesus. You're looking for work and the only option in town is a guild. You see the pressure? But if you join that guild, you know you're going to have to take part in these activities because if you don't, you're a scab. Understand? You're a scab. You'll get work nowhere. Nobody will talk to you. You and your family will get terrorized in the streets. What do you do if you're a Christian? And, and, and Christians, we don't face the same circumstances exactly today, but we do face similar ones, don't we? Do we follow the culture of uh, the world around us today or do we stand firm? So, legislation comes in at work, which we know goes against what the Bible teaches. What do we do? Do we obey the law and keep our job? Or do we stand on our principles with the Bible? Or, a more basic example, you know, should we um, give in to the language of the factory floor of the building sites? Should we run businesses on dodgy cash-in-hand practices to avoid paying the tax man? Our kids have the same if they join a drama club or a sports club. Should they do it on a Sunday when they should be in church worshipping God? Should we do things that aren't Christian 
and go against the Bible. These are decisions we have to make every day. Every day. These are decisions that the church in Thyatira were having to make, these Christians. Now let's read God's Word. Just remember, just bear these things in mind. This is God's Word. Revelation 2, verse 18. The angel of the church in Thyatira write, The words of the Son of God, whose eyes like flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who called herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of their works. And I will strike her children dead, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold to this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He was an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, that's a mouthful, right? So what's going on? So again, remember, it's a union town. So straight off the bat, we see in verse 18 that this introduction is different than the introduction to the other letters. Look how he talks about Jesus in verse 18. He calls him the Son of God. And you might not think that's important. But it is important. Look how he's described, verse 18, son of God, eyes like a flame of fire, feet like burnished bronze. John wants this church to know from the off that Jesus is the Holy One, that Jesus, with his eyes of flaming fire, is the all-seeing one. Listen to Jeremiah 16, verse 17 talks about the eyes of the Lord. He says, My eyes are on all their ways. They're not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. Listen to the author of Hebrews, Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature hidden from his sight. All things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. John wants this church to know straight away, Jesus sees everything and Jesus is coming to judge. In our culture, how do, you want to, how do you know if a geezer is lying to you? I'll tell you how you know. You look him in the eye, don't you? The guy can't meet your gaze. The guy can't look you in the face when he's talking to you. The guy's at it. We know that, don't we? Of course we do. One day, John says, Jesus will come and look us all in the eye. All of us. And if we don't meet his gaze... We're going to be in big trouble. Everything, he says here, you, keep, you think you're keeping secret will come to light under the watchful eye of Jesus. Now, there's a mistake in church circles that says, well, Jesus comes again. He's just going to judge unbelievers. Actually, when Jesus comes again, the Bible tells us, 1 Peter 4, when judgment does come, 
It doesn't come calling to unbelievers first. It comes calling to the house of God. And in this letter, it's come calling to this church in Thyatira. And again, we live in it with a notion, and it's a mistaken notion, that Jesus is all soft and cuddly. But John says, no, eyes like burning fire. That means this. I may not see your computer browser history, but he does. I may not see your smartphone images, but he does. I may not know what you get up to outside these doors, but he does. We have a God who doesn't miss a trick, however clever, however deceptive we think we are being. The modern church makes Jesus all warm and cuddly and tolerant. And that is true, Jesus is loving. But there's also a frightening side to his character that needs to be taken seriously. And this church, you're about to find out that there's another side to the Lord. So what's the problem in the church? Well, at first glance, it didn't seem to be a problem, does it? Look at verse 19. They're doing well, aren't they? I know your works, your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance. And in fact, he says, I know it's even greater than when you first got converted. See that? Verse 19. I mean, if you'd gone to this church, you'd be buzzing. What a great church this is, right? People are brilliant, you know. Brazilians have just told us we're all lovely people and, you know, we're amazing. Just a shame that they don't know what we're really like. If you'd have gone to this church, you'd have thought, what lovely, kind, caring, beautiful people. Look at the ministry going on here. Wow. Why can't my church be like that? This is amazing. That's what you would have said to yourself. In fact, this church is the exact opposite of the church at Ephesus. You can look at verse 2 in chapter 2. She said, remember what he says to the church there? I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. Ephesus was commended for not putting up with evil in the church and getting rid of false teachers. So Ephesus was a great church. If you taught anything dodgy in Ephesus, you're on your ear. But what was the problem with Ephesus? Verse 4, I have this against you. You've abandoned the love you had at first. So the problem with Ephesus is they loved the truth, but it came at the expense of love. They wanted to get every point of doctrine right. They fought to maintain the doctrinal purity of the church, which isn't wrong, but they had little love for people. And because of that, God pronounced judgment on them. And Thyatira is the opposite. They love people. They were brilliant at that. Absolutely brilliant. But look at verse 20. But I've got this against you. Complete opposite of Ephesus. That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess. And something is wrong. There's a serious problem. And here's the thing. Jesus with the eyes of flaming fire saw it when the world didn't see it. What looked like a strong, wonderful, loving church on the outside was actually poisoned from within. And John writes to this church because he says, look, this needs to be sorted out. Imagine, you know, imagine being a, you know, a great bodybuilder full of muscles. I know that's hard to imagine for some of you, but just imagine you've got muscles and stuff. Built like Andy Constable, built to, built to kill. 
And uh, imagine muscles everywhere, strong as an ox, but inside there's a tiny, tiny little bit of cancer. But you look good, you feel good, you're strong. I'm just going to ignore that cancer. I feel all right. Would that be a stupid thing to do? It would be a ridiculous thing to do, right? Because it doesn't matter how strong you are, sooner or later, it's going to grow, it's going to poison you, and it's going to bring you down. The problem is, in the church, that there's this woman causing problems. John calls her Jezebel. How many kids do we know with the name Jezebel? Not a sort of top ten popular daughter's name, is it? Oh, Jezus. Now, this wasn't her name, by the way. This was actually, it's actually told you what kind of woman she was. When you were called Jezebel in the first century, it wasn't a compliment. They were calling you a whore or a prostitute. It's actually a stronger word than that, but I've been through my wife's process of what I can and cannot say. So those are two words I use in case parents have problems that are in the Bible, okay? Jezebel, historically, was a real person. She lived in Old Testament times. You can find out about her in two, two kings. She was married to this dude called King Ahab. He was a plum, right? He was a weak, spineless idiot. She was a gobby woman, domineering, right? A right cow, right? He's trying to lead Israel to follow God. She follows idols. And so she uses her ways, seduces her, him, and convinces him to leave God behind and follow these prophets of Baal. The guy was spineless, and she was bang at it. And time and again, she tried, she led the people of God astray. And when the Bible uses the language of Jezebel... It's always, always, always talking about idolatry. Listen to Isaiah 9, verse 1. Rejoice not, O Israel. Exult not like the peoples, for you have played the whore, forsaken your God. You've loved the prostitute's wages on all threshing floors. Listen to Jeremiah 3, 6. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, that prostitute of Israel? How she went up on every high hill, under every green tree, and there played the whore. Ezekiel 23, 19. Yet she increased her whoring, Remembering the days of her youth when she played the whore in the land of Egypt. Jezebel was not a nice thing to be called. Okay? This is strong language. This woman was claiming to speak from God. She was leading the people astray. Let me be very clear about something. The issue wasn't that she was a woman allowed to prophesy. That's not the issue because women were allowed to prophesy. The issue was she was claiming to speak from God but she wasn't speaking the message of God. And it seems that she was teaching the church it was okay to be a Christian, it was okay to join a guild, it was okay to go to these orgies. You need to feed your family, right? God wants you to feed your family. You've got to do something. Don't worry about it. Just don't get too involved. Try and be a good witness and relax. Relax. That's what he means when he says at the end of verse 20, 
She teaches and deceives my servants to commit sexual immorality, to eat meat offered to idols. Later on in verse 24, he calls her teaching the secrets of Satan. And because these guys feared losing their jobs, desperate to be Christians, desperate to keep their job, desperate to work it out somehow, she just manipulated the situation and said, I've had a word from God. He said, it's all right. Go on, have a bash. This woman claiming to receive messages, visions, pictures from God, giving, giving people permission. You can guess how the argument went, right? Just go and don't get involved. Try and be a good witness to Jesus. But God calls her a Jezebel because her teaching didn't lead to godliness. It led to immorality and sin. Listen, I heard all this stuff all the time. When I trained at seminary to be a pastor, and I did get qualifications in case you're worried that, you know, they're not off the internet, not all of them. And I went to seminary, and um, it had these clowns going out, kids going out at weekends, going, oh, we're going to go to a nightclub and and tell people about Jesus and that. And I'm like, what are you doing that for, you morons? Like, well, because I'm going to teach them that Christians are dead cool and that. Not dancing like that, you're not, right? I'm going to teach them that Christians can be like, "Mm, cool too. We're going to be salt and light in the dark place, man. Let me tell you what happened to these idiots. More than often than not, they all came staggering back into college at night, steamboated, trashed off their trolleys. Here's the thing. They didn't go out and make nightclubs any lighter. They just came back darker. You understand what I'm saying? That's what happens. We don't get to play around in the devil's playground and think it is not going to affect us. I'm special. I know what I'm doing. The same as we can't worship Jesus and still go along with compromised practices at work. You cannot have a foot in both camps. Cannot please God. We cannot please the world. We cannot compromise the faith and think it will leave us unaffected. This woman was probably saying the same thing. Look, go to the guilds. Be salt and light. Teach them that Christians are not so narrow-minded. Teach them they're not all holy joes. And this might sound attractive to many people who like the sound of the Christian faith. They like the sound of Jesus, like the sound of church, like mind a bit of the community. But when it comes to living godly lives, they can't follow it through. And Thyatira was weak. Maybe these Christians, they were so loving, they were kind, they were caring. Maybe they didn't want to offend people. Maybe they didn't want to upset people. Maybe they didn't want to lose members from their church. But the bottom line is God is judging them, and it's spinelessness. This woman had the spirit of Jezebel, and the church had the spirit of Ahab. One's a tart, and the other one is spineless. And the problem with Christians and churches that elevate love over truth is real. Just as much as he said in Ephesus, when we elevate truth over love. Do you see that? Being a loving church, being a loving Christian is no excuse for accepting false teaching. That's Jesus' point here. I have, listen to what he said, it's not me, listen to what he says in the text. I have this against you. Being loving, doing good works, not enough. We have to guard the truth that's been entrusted to us. This woman's been com- repeatedly warned. Look at verse 21. Repeatedly warned. Gave her time to repent, but she continues to lead people astray. So he says, listen, she's going to be dealt with severely. 
You know, cancer is only scary if we leave it untreated. Poison is only scary if we don't take the antidote. If we delay, sooner or later there comes a point of no return, doesn't there? The same can be said of error in the church. We can't leave error untreated. We can't leave flagrant open sin that brings the name and the glory of the gospel into disrepute. We can't leave it untreated. Some people think it's unloving to challenge sin or it's unloving to practice church discipline, but it isn't. It's the most loving thing in the world. What is truly unloving is to allow error to enter the church and to spread through the congregation. And we're all going to face pressures to go along with the world, whether you sign on the brew or work cash in hand. It's a pressure, right? Whether you let your unchristian practices go at work because we don't want to rock the boat or lose our jobs. If we give an inch to the enemy, he'll take a mile. What our council estates need are stronger churches unafraid to stand for the truth however the world responds to us. And Thyatira proves this. Being kind and loving and persevering are nothing if we allow compromised teaching to go unchallenged. And if you don't think that church doctrine matters, then you've got no place being in the church leadership. God wants a pure church, and we need to get a grip of this. I mean, how many, te- how many false teachers do you think it would take to bring this church down? How many do you think it would take to bring 20 schemes down? What if I allow anybody into 20 schemes? Oh, well, they're nice. They love Jesus. It doesn't matter what they believe. What if I did that? Well, we'd end up in trouble, wouldn't we? Sooner or later, we would end up in trouble. And if you don't believe me, take a look at our state church. Hmm? Take a look at the Church of Scotland. Yes, there are brothers. Yes, there are brothers in it right now who are Christians. But look how the poison has spread through that denomination and others like it. How much poison do you think it takes to kill a, you know, it takes to kill a whole batch of bread? It takes a drop. How much sin do you think it takes in your life to compromise your witness? Because we justify sin, don't we? It's not a big one. It doesn't matter. I'll repent later. When we allow any sin into our lives, no matter how small we think it is, we are drinking spiritual poison. And you better believe me, you won't last long on that diet. That's the problem in the church. Here's his solution. Two ways to, to respond, he says, to this problem. First way he talks about in verse 21 and 22 is he mentions the word repentance. In fact, he talks about it twice. That means that the church had to turn away from this sin and move back toward Jesus. And that's the same for any of us trapped in sin. Okay? We don't need to sit around feeling sorry for ourselves. We're struggling in our faith if we're, you know, wanting to move toward God. We just turn to God. Ask forgiveness. And you know what? The Lord forgives us. That's the promise of the Bible. This stuff isn't complicated. 
But the second response is in verse 25. And he says there, hold fast until I come. He says, stick in. I'm going to deal with these people. Hold fast to the truth. Hold firm to the ends. Don't get tainted by this stuff. Don't get sucked into this stuff. Stick to the Bible. Stick to the church. Make sure you've got good accountability in your life. Confess your sins to one another. Hold short accounts. And be suspicious of everyone, especially people like me. Understand that? Be suspicious of guys who stand up here. Every one of them. All of us. Check everything we say against what the Bible... That's why I constantly say, have your Bible open. Don't believe me because I crack a few one-liners and I know a bit of Greek. Don't do that. Check everything against the Bible. Be suspicious of everyone. Do you know why? Because we don't have to worry about idiots out the door perverting the message of the church. All falsehood spreads from within the church. You understand that? All comes from within. People with a ready smile and a good bit of patter. We've got to be on our guard. We've got to watch out for one another. We've got to watch out for the teaching of falsehood in the church. I said this yesterday at the weekend. Who is responsible to ensure that I am not teaching nonsense in this church? Or Andy isn't teaching nonsense. Who is responsible? The congregation. The members of this church, you're responsible. And if I start spouting nonsense, kick my backside out the door and don't look back. That's our responsibility. We've got to hold fast to the truth and anybody that tries to dis- take that away from us, distract us, or lead us down another path, we've got to get shut of them. And Jesus makes two promises to end. He says this. The first is found in verse 22 and 23. He said, look, I'm going to judge this woman and all of her followers. You know, Jezebel, was, she was booted out a window, right? And she splattered on the floor and then the dogs at her. It's not a bad way to go, is it? And uh, she, she went in a bad way. She was killed. You know what happened to her children? All of them killed, butchered. The language here in this text is very, very striking, isn't it? He says, so it will be for the children and followers of this Jezebel. The Lord is going to strike them down. How tough is that? Does that sound tolerant to you? Does that sound like happy Jesus tiptoeing through the church, high-fiving people and not wanting to offend anybody? That's brutal language right there. This is a full, final, terrible judgment. I will cast her on a bed of suffering. Can you imagine that? And all those who follow her teaching. Literally, he says, they'll be struck with a great plague. In other words, if you don't repent, you won't escape the judgment of Christ. What is true for them is true for us. It's true for all sinners. No one will escape the all-seeing eye and judgment of Jesus. When judgment comes, it will be swift, it will be severe, it will be final, and it will be eternal. Wow, that's depressing, right? That's a bit harsh. Give us some cuddles, Mez. Why are you so hot? Why why is Jesus being like this? Well, he tells us in verse 23, doesn't he? I will strike her children dead, harsh. Why? All the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. I will give to each of you according to your works. He wants them to know. 
The Lord is not to be messed with, to be trifled with, to be played around with. He is the Son of God, eyes like burning fire. But there's a second promise at the end of verse 25 and 26. Look at it. We'll end here. Hold fast until I come. Verse 25, the one who conquers, who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. We will overcome if we stick close to Jesus. Look, I don't know what's happening in the future. Maybe you'll lose your job. Maybe you'll lose your child tax benefits. Maybe you'll lose your housing benefit. And? Is that the worst that can happen to us? Because that's not what the Bible teaches. We don't need power, Christians. We don't need money. We need Jesus. We need to be walking in a godly way with Jesus. One day, and this is why non-Christians think we're nuts. Because we are crackers, right? If you think about it. Because this is what we teach, right? Nut jobs, a lot of us. One day, Jesus is going to come again. He's going to rule the whole world. And we're going to rule with him. And it'll be dead good. But that's what the Bible teaches. And that's what I believe. And Jesus says, listen, one day we will rule with him. We may not be rulers now. We may be downtrodden now. We may have to do whatever the boss says now. We may be struggling along now. But one day when Jesus comes again for his people, for those who hold fast and overcome, there will be no more struggle. That's the promise of the Bible. Verse 27, he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father. The Son of God will one day give us all authority. The Son of God will one day destroy all his enemies and rule, and we will rule with him. Everything, every nation, every person. And then he, and then he ends this little weird verse, verse 28, I'll give him the morning star. What does that mean? Well, the morning star is Jesus. We will receive the morning star means this. We will receive Jesus in the next life in such a way that we can never fully understand it now. We will be perfect. We will be perfect and we will be joined with perfection forever. That's the promise of the Bible. That's the promise for those who love the Lord, love the truth, hold fast, overcome, and keep hanging on to Jesus Christ. Let me end with what he says in verse 29. He or she who has an ear, let them hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Amen. You've been listening to TGC's Word of the Week. Check back next week for another gospel-centered sermon. We also invite you to visit the resources section of our website, thegospelcoalition.org, to find thousands of sermons to help you understand and apply God's Word.